Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. You did not, you did not ask for this, what is about to happen this morning uh, on this stage. I, uh, I was joking with the, the first service. You know, dads, those sarcastic things you say to your kids whenever you are just done with a situation or a moment, uh, you know, you, you have had it, your kids are whining, they're complaining, and so you just kind of spout off that saying, okay? My dad's saying was, I'll give you that, all right? But it was always for things we didn't want, okay? So if it was like we were pleading our case of why we didn't think we should be spanked or disciplined or something, it was like, Dad, I don't want a spanking. you go, I'll give you a spanking. And it was like, no, Dad. Maybe you're not picking up on this. I'm asking not to get a spanking, not for the spanking. Or I was, a, I was an extremely, extremely picky eater. I still am a picky eater. And, and uh, we would maybe be at like fast food restaurant. I'd order a cheeseburger. And I'd say, I'd tell them that I didn't want any pickles, you know, because the pickles, they get into the bun and they saturate it. And you just literally, if a pickle has touched something, the taste will just get, you know, infect everything. And so... My dad, my mom wouldn't be at the fast food. My dad was taking care of us four kids. And so he's like had it with all the whininess and complaining. I'd be like, dad, they gave me a pickle, you know? Can you go take care of this? He'd be like, I'll give you a pickle, son. And I'm like, wait, dad, I still don't think you understand what I'm saying here. Like I'm, I'm not asking for a pick. Okay, whatever. That's kind of what I feel like is happening today for you, and uh, I apologize. And yet, this topic of anxiety and depression that we're going to look at today amongst our adolescents is something that is, uh, that is growing. It's, it's getting bigger. It's a statistic that we, we can't really ignore anymore. Uh, we have to encounter it. We have to kind of start thinking through uh, how do we support and, uh, and value this and relate to and testify and, and just all that we have to do as adults uh, because it just continues to grow. And as I meet with more and more parents and more and more students uh, on a monthly basis and they say, I think my child is depressed and they're anxious. And the thing that I always say is you're not alone. You are not alone. Even though you feel like you're alone, you are not alone. This is something that is happening, kind of an epidemic that is sweeping through our adolescent generation. And so I've been wanting to, to talk about this for a couple of years and uh, felt like now was probably the moment that it just needed to be brought up and so that we can think through it as a congregation. And uh, I want to say, I want to kind of, I, I want to say this hopefully so that you give me grace, is that I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm someone that is interacting with students on a, a daily, weekly basis. I'm an observer, and I'm just kind of watching how parents and grandparents and teachers and communities are trying to cope with the high, high rates of depression and anxiety that are going on in our adolescence right now. And I also want to start out by saying that this is not a corrective talk for parents. This is not like a discipline talk. Like, you're not here right now as adults for me to say, you did everything wrong. Why did you do it that way? This is more of just an informative talk to be able to inform all of you, whether you have kids right now that are in the adolescent age group 
or, or maybe you have kids that are getting ready to enter. Maybe your kids are already have come and gone through adolescence and you are struggling with uh, anxiety or depression in your life. Uh, this is a talk to inform, not to correct, not to discipline. And so let's just go ahead and start getting into a little bit of the statistics uh, as we, we get into this. And, and before that, I even just wanna say that I am extremely impressed. I now have been here for eight years and I am just so extremely impressed and respect uh, the parents at Hillside that, that love their kids and they want the best for their kids and they want their kids to grow up in godly homes. They want them to pursue his kingdom. And so, like I said, this is not a correctional talk. This is not a Hillside is getting this topic wrong. Uh, it is something to just come alongside of you as parents and grandparents and teachers and influencers of our adolescents and say, how do we learn from this? How do we kind of embrace this together? Uh, this, is, this is a little bit of the statistics that make up our post-millennial or what we would call the iGen generation, the, the students that fit somewhere between the ages 6 and 23 years old. Uh, these students were born between the years 1995 and 2012. So some of the, the students or children that fit into this category are not adolescents yet, okay? But they, this is the generation of adolescents that, that we have right now in our teenage years. Uh, something to make note of that is going to make us all feel very depressed right now uh, is because we're going to find out how old we are, is that when we start the student ministry in the fall, all right, we will not have a student that was born in the 90s, all right? That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Everybody in the fall will be now born in the year 2000 and beyond. So soak that in, and we'll talk about your depression in a little bit, all right? This, this generation uh, makes up 24% of our population with 74 million Americans. And in his article about parenting in the digital age, Tony Ranke says, that these kids have never known life without the internet. Each has entered or will enter adolescence in the stage of, or in the age of the smartphone. Gene Twenge, a, a psychologist at San Diego State University, has studied this generation and found that they are safe, they are protected by their parents, they are the most likely to be homebodies, and compared to previous generations, listen to this, compared to previous generations, these teens are statistically less likely to go to parties, to go on dates, to get their driver's license, to drink alcohol, to smoke tobacco, uh, to ride in a car without a seatbelt, or to experiment with sex while in their teenage years. And to add to the generational qualities, another one is that this group is more anxious and depressed than any other generation before them. In her magazine article, Anxiety, Depression, and the American Adolescent, Susanna Schrobsdorf, that's really her name, and I apologize if any of you have that name and I've just offended you, all right? Susanna Schrobsdorf writes that anxiety and depression in high school kids have been on the rise since 2012 after several years of stability. It's a phenomenon that cuts across all demographics, suburban, urban, and rural, those who are college-bound and those who are not. She goes on to say that teens' minds throughout history have always craved stimulation and their emotional reactions have always been urgent and at times debilitating. The biggest variable, then, is the climate in which teens navigate the stage of development that they are now going through. 
What she's saying is, is that there is not much difference between how you thought and reacted and had the emotional highs and lows that you experienced when you were a teenager. There's not much difference between you and the student right now in our ministry. The difference is the environment and the climate in which they are growing up in. And we don't have time to talk about all of the contributing factors to the rise in anxiety and depression, but I, I would like us to, to kind of start zoning in on a couple of them. Think about this. They are the post 9-11 generation raised in an era of economic and national insecurity. They've never known a time when terrorism and school shootings weren't the norm. They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession, and perhaps more important, they hit puberty at a time when technology and social media were transforming society. Janice Whitlock, the director of the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery said, if you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we have done it. Do you see why this topic is so heavy to me? And although our adolescents are dealing with this issue on a level that is higher than ever before, I believe that you can relate as well. A little under a decade ago, back in 2010, a study shows that in the year 2010, 253 million antidepressant prescriptions were written in the U.S. This nation only has 311 million people living in it. And so this is not a topic that is only isolated to our students at this church. This is a topic that a lot of people in our culture are dealing with. Before we get too far into this talk, I, uh, I think that we should probably sit back and, and kind of take a step back and define anxiety and depression and just kind of make some notes as we're thinking through this. Anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an eminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. It may be helpful to think through anxiety in terms more of a state of being and worry actually the verb, the action that kind of comes with it. And John Mark Comer in his book, My Name is Hope, an amazing book that if any of you are struggling with anxiety or depression or know someone, have a loved one that is or a friend that is, this is an amazing resource to, to start kind of being able to uncover some of the things that are going on. But John Mark Comer wants to make sure that we note that that the feeling or emotion of fear is actually a good thing for us. If you were in a plane and it was, you, you heard that it was actually going to crash, it would actually be weird to not experience fear, right? It's when fear starts to cripple us. It's when the, the what-ifs suffocate our brains, when our imagination about the future and what could potentially happen to us or our family starts to run haywire. And I love, I love his quote as he talks about worry because he says, you worry what you worship. If you worry about money, then you worship money. If you worry about how people perceive your family, then you worship your family. He says that worry is temporary atheism. It's when we have taken our trust off of a God who is in control and we have placed it on ourselves and our ability to figure out certain situations in our lives. Mm. It's beautiful. Well, it's not actually beautiful, but that quote is beautiful. Depression then is severe despondency and dejection typically felt over a period of time 
and accompanied by feelings of hopelessness and inadequacy. And again, Comer wants to make sure that we know that feeling sorrow, grieving through hard situations in our lives are natural things that need to take place as we process grief and loss and pain and we heal. And yet depression kind of starts to set in when we're getting nowhere, when we are getting bogged down, when, when it is now over periods of time when it should already have been dealt with and healed and we are still dealing with it. So who in this room can't relate with the adolescents? We, we all have been there. I, when I spoke back in January, I was honest about the fact that 2017 was literally the worst year in my life. And at times throughout 2017, I, I experienced anxiety. At times, I, I was depressed. I went through those things as I was, was mourning the loss of certain things as I was grieving. And yet where wisdom, experience, and godly perspective have helped me and you to calm our fears as mature adults, in many cases, an adolescent is struggling with something almost too great and too heavy to deal with where you have been able to realize the full ramifications of our faith and we have seen how God has grown us through trying seasons that have come and gone. A student oftentimes feels that they are drowning under something that they are not mature enough to fully handle yet. We don't have time, like I said, to look at everything, but I, I do wanna look at one of the things that I believe is the highest contributor to anxiety and depression in our adolescent age group, and that is what smartphones and social media have kind of ushered in that you as adults did not have to deal with when you were their age. And it's kind of termed hyper-connectedness. And it's this idea that in the same ways that you connect to certain things or certain places or certain causes or, or certain people, students are doing it on a level that is extremely overwhelming. Let me kind of throw this out there and then we'll, we'll I think, be able to relate a little bit better. How many of you, if I say the name Princess Diana, know who I'm talking about? Yeah. How many of you, if I, when I say the name Princess Diana, you have some type of emotional connection to that woman? I, I still, I was 11 years old when I found out that Princess Diana had died in a car crash in August of 1997. And I remember seeing my mom being sad and I remember other people around me being sad. And I honestly, as an 11 year old, sat and thought to myself, mom, did you attend the royal wedding or something? Like, I, I didn't, I never knew you went to Britain and had dinner with the royal family. You know, like, did I miss something? Did, have we had play dates with the, the kids, her kids? Like, did I miss something? Like, I was in the presence of them and I didn't know? No. And yet, as I talked to my mom this week about that event and about her feelings about Princess Diana, you would have thought that she was the maid of honor at her wedding right? And many of you connected. My mom said, you know what? I just, oh, I loved her so much. She was so beautiful and her clothing was so great. And, and you know, I, I just yearned. I wanted her to be so happy in her marriage in which she was just kind of enslaved in. And I, I hated what the, the media and the paparazzi did by just ruining her life. 
And my mom received those little morsels of information on television. Maybe she would read them in a, a People magazine, but it was, it was very sporadic. It was spread out. And that's the type of connectiveness, those same emotions are, are the same emotions and, and levels of connection that our students are experiencing, but on steroids. Because at any moment, no matter where they live, they can be connected and follow and know and talk with someone that is experiencing something somewhere else in the world, whether they're a celebrity, whether they're just someone going through something kind of on the same level as them, whether they're hearing about a cause or a tragedy. It's just all bombarding and overwhelming and just stacking on top of them. I, I kind of wrote down a scenario to help us kind of understand a little bit. Imagine this. Imagine that you are an adolescent and you have just heard about a divorce in a celebrity's life that you follow on social media and you see them grieving and discussing and venting about what's going on. And around the same time, you, you open up your weather app to see what the weather's gonna be like in Texas that day and you hear about the volcanoes that are erupting on Hawaii and they're kind of destroying and fracturing the big island. While you're taking that in and hearing about you know, that type of tragedy and how people have lost things, you find out that there is still racial tension in a city nearby and things are starting to get out of hand. You, you actually experience a high at this point because you just found out that you made the volleyball team and you're extremely excited about that. And later, someone on Facebook made you aware that there are kids starving in Africa and that, they, that you need to do something immediately about it. All this is going on while you are constantly having the pressure on top of you to maintain your class rank so that you can go to the college that your parents want you to get into. Like we may listen and see and hear a list of all of those highs and lows and think, oh, well, that's like a week's worth. And in reality, that could have happened within 15 minutes of an adolescent's life, that they took in all of that data. They took in all of that information. They heard about success, they heard about failure, they heard about tragedy, they heard about pain, and it could all just continue to compact and pile and stack on top of itself. And when you hear about that, you start to understand why students are kind of like, hey, let's go find the drugs that numb us. Let's go find substances that allow us to escape for a little bit. And students, this is why we talk a lot. You gotta turn the phones off sometimes. You gotta get away. You gotta tell social media, no, I'm out. You gotta, you gotta embrace the fear of missing out and just say, today I am missing out. Those are realities. And yet parents, we'll keep talking about this, but parents, you have to help your child that is at times not mature enough to make those decisions on their own and regulate themselves, understand that that is important in their lives as well. That hyperconnectedness is just crippling. Let's talk a little bit about holistically dealing with anxiety and depression because uh, if we were to fix the spiritual and not fix the physical problems that are going on, we are not addressing the whole topic. And if we were only to fix the physical problems and not fix the spiritual problems, we would also be doing ourselves a disservice. So let's just kind of 
think through a little bit of the physical things that we can think through and fix and kind of get our, wrap our minds around. And the first one I think is probably the biggest one, the one that has the most opinions and baggage related to it. And that is, what do we do with prescription meds? Because if your if you're teenager or a loved one that you have has experienced anxiety and depression on a level that is, is staggering, it's crippling to them, then you have probably encountered this issue and you probably have some very good opinions on it. And I'm not actually going to give you probably what you want specifically. Because at Hillside, as I talk to youth pastors, as I talk to so many godly, Christ-loving parents and pastors and teachers and leaders, they land on completely different sides of this topic. And so what I don't wanna do is say, this is how you have to think through it. If you do this, you're a bad parent. But what I will say is I assume, I assume that as you are having to approach this topic, that you are praying through it, that you are seeking godly advice, that you are very aware of side effects and implications of whatever that medication could do, that you are constantly keeping an eye and being attentive to the changes in your teenager, to your adolescent at all times, and that whatever you have decided, that God has led you to that place, all right? Whatever you've decided. But I do want us to all make sure that we understand something about antidepressants, no matter what side of the argument you fall on, all right? Antidepressants don't fix a soul. They don't heal, all right? They don't heal. In his, in his book, My Name is Hope, Comer talks about the fact that that anxiety and depressions are symptoms of brokenness in our souls. Just like if you broke your leg, your body would be hurting in the place where your leg is broken, and it's saying, help me, do something about me, stay off of me. Anxiety and depression are just symptoms pointing to the fact that something is off. Damage has been done. Pain exists. Legitimate pain. Not, not pain that we would say, ah, just deal with it. Legitimate pain has been done, but it's pointing to that. And so antidepressants can never step into that equation and fix the entire problem. They can't. It's not what they're designed to do. The, the best way that I've heard it described is if you are battling anxiety and depression on a high level, you feel like you're drowning. And what an antidepressant is designed to do for those that wanna use them well is it's going to allow you to get your head above water long enough to start to process and heal, to, to meet with biblical counselors, to, to get community in your life, to, to not be in isolation anymore, to get out. And so no matter where you fall on that, you just need to understand that if you decide my child is gonna take something, okay, I support you, I respect you, but it's not going to fix the problem. Things need to happen at a deeper level in order for the process to get worked out in their life, in order for that symptom to start clearing up and going away. A couple other things that we can kind of look at that I'm not gonna take too much time to talk about is things like diet. What's your diet like? I love Whataburger, but I'm not gonna lie that after I eat Whataburger, I feel depressed, okay? Like momentary high, 
and then it hits, all right? And you're like, I just want to go home and sleep and watch Netflix, okay? And none of us are saying that's a healthy lifestyle. So diet, all right? Exercise, exercise. Are you getting out of the house? Are you getting fresh air? Are you in community with other people, students? I am not a hippie. I am anything but a hippie. But God has designed us to be in his creation, okay? And at times that means going out in 105 degree heat in Texas. At times that means going for a walk. At times it means unplugging our phones and getting away from it and just enjoying his creation, observing what he has done. And so that plays a big part into it. Exercise, being outside, getting fresh air, living in that community. But here's the biggest one, I think, is rest. Rest. And rest encompasses so much. It's not uncommon, and you would all know this, and I've been guilty of it, and you may be guilty of it as well. When you ask someone in America, how are you doing? It's not uncommon for them to say, I'm busy. Always busy. Just busy. Got all this stuff going on at work, all this stuff going on with kids. Just always busy. And I I don't know why we feel, but I guess there's this cultural idea here that if I can prove to somebody else that I am always busy, then they will think higher of me because I'm maintaining this level of busyness. I'm contributing to society. I'm doing things. I'm working really hard at work. And there are times that in your family's life, you will go through busy seasons, right? That's fully expected. There are times at work when you have to work those long hours. And yet, if we are glorifying this idea that we just always have to go. You get home from work, first thing you do, pull out your phone. Start checking in with everything that's going on. You know, never spending time, never resting, never having a moment to just kind of isolate yourself. Then once you expect all of that to exist in your life, all of that anxiety, all of that depression to just be able to to live in that type of environment, you need moments of rest. I'm not, I'm not advocating in the old school, like on Sunday, you go home from church, you don't turn television on, no football, you just kind of sit there. I'm not advocating for that. But what I am advocating for is that we need to just slow down. When I go out to eat and I see parents sitting with their kids and they're all on their phones, I'm just thinking, you are missing it. This is your one moment in the day to sit and talk and figure out what's going on in life. And you're missing that opportunity to catch up and to de-stress and to kind of just deprogram right now. When you do embrace rest, and you know what? If someone thinks less of you because you say, right now, I'm actually not that stressed. I'm, man, I got 10 hours of sleep last night. All right? And if they think less of you, who cares? right? Who cares? God instituted rest all throughout the scriptures for his people in the Old Testament, for us in the New Testament. Embrace it. Be fine with it. Be okay with lazy Saturday mornings in which you get to spend family time together. Put the phone somewhere else. Rest from technology. Students, rest from technology. It's going to kill you, all right? It's going to stress you out. It's going to depress you. Just rest from it. Enjoy time breathing. Did I beat that horse into the ground? Okay. 
Let's switch gears a little bit because if we're gonna deal with the physical, we also have to deal with the spiritual. And this is where the beauty of the gospel exists. We have the option of hope in our lives as Christians. I say option because we have to decide are we gonna have passive faith or are we gonna have active faith? Let me just kind of go through it. So a couple weeks ago, uh, we in the student ministry were going through the book of Acts uh, as we're leading up to the mission trip that we're going on in June and uh, kind of seeing the movement of God and how he was working and how his kingdom was growing and just the gospel just keeps moving. And uh, as we're reading it, we come across Acts 10 where Peter goes and is told, go talk to Cornelius, this Gentile God-fearing man and share the gospel with him. And while, while Peter is telling Cornelius about it, pops up. Peter says, this is the gospel of peace with God through Christ. I thought, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the multifaceted nature of the gospel is that in every generation, in whatever generational sin or issue is taking place, the gospel is always relevant. It is so gorgeous because we can talk about getting enough exercise, we can talk about medication, we can talk about rest, we can talk about all of those physical things, and yet, if our hearts are unresting, fractured before a holy God, what's it really gonna do? What have you done? Bought yourself another week of happiness when all of us are pursuing after intense, real, genuine joy? And the gospel is the only thing that brings that. Because until you deal with your sin before God, you will always be at, you will always have fracture. You will always have unrest. Anxiety, listen to me, anxiety should exist in someone who has not dealt with their sin before God. Am I right? It should be. When we expect that, how are we going to put a band-aid on something that, that you can't fix with a band-aid? It needs to be healed internally. And it's the beauty of the gospel. Oh my word, it's the beauty of the gospel. We, we crave. I think in our suburban, nice, neat sub, you know, culture, we crave neatness. We crave this idea of comfort and, and just cleanliness. And, and mess is something that we just want to kind of get out of the way. You know where the gospel thrives? Brokenness. It thrives. It's so beautiful because the students are coming to us left and right. They're saying something is off in my life. I'm so unhappy. I'm so anxious. I'm so depressed. You know what we get to say to them? Hey, we got the answer. We got the answer. And it's not, it's not you having the picture-perfect vacation with your family so that all your friends can think you're so great. It's not your designer clothing. It's not the car that you just got for your 16-year-old birthday. It's not any of that. None of that is going to fix the problem because the problem starts between you and God. And when Christ comes, he says, you can now experience peace. And Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy that are in need of this gospel. It is the sick. And so as a culture, as adults, as grandparents, as, as parents, as teachers. We need to embrace the mess, embrace the brokenness. 
That is where the gospel can truly come to life is when people say, I need something else. Life isn't working right now. And our teen generation is crying for it. They are crying for it. Embrace it, adults. Embrace it, parents. But like I said, this is, this is not a gospel. Students, hear me on this. This is not a passive gospel. This is not a stagnant gospel. This is not a, well, I go to church on Sunday and sometimes on Wednesday. Well, I serve in the children. This is an active gospel in your life. As Pete has termed, this is an eternal living now type of gospel. That's your only hope. That's why you have the option. If you just want to trust in your get me out of hell free card, it's probably not going to work. It is active. That's what will, that's what will get you out. In, uh, in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It's right there. It's right in front of you. But it can't be this lifestyle of, well, I'm at church, and then I want nothing to do with God the rest of the week, and then I'm always on my phone, I'm always hearing about things, I never put anything through God's perspective and through his worldview approach to things, and then I'm anxious and depressed. Why am I anxious and depressed, God? You must not really love me. You must not really have truth. You must not have real gospel that you promised to have. You have not given me any peace. When all along, it's us who have not been living out the requirements of the gospel, to cling to it, to trust it. I, uh, when I was an elementary school kid, I remember hearing about this woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. All right, quite the name, Corey Ten Boom. I actually, the first time I heard about her, I thought she was a professional wrestler uh, because Ten Boom just kind of sounds like someone that would, you know, body slam someone else, okay? And as I, as I heard more about her, I, I knew that at some point, her book, The Hiding Place, would be one of those things that I just had to stop and read. And uh, I started reading it this last month. And if you don't know much about Corey Ten Boom, uh, she was a woman, a Christian woman, that went through World War II uh, in the country of Holland. She's a Dutch Christian woman. And as the Nazis were taking over Germany and as they were suppressing God's people, the Jews, her and her family had to decide, what are we going to do? How, are we going to hide from this? Are we going to embrace it? How are we going to help? And because their house looked like it did and was built like it was built, it was the perfect place to hide Jewish people and to help them move through kind of the underground railroad system that existed to get them out of Western Europe and into safety. And she knew and her family knew that at some point probably was gonna cost them their safety and their lives and yet they did it anyway because they knew that God was calling them to protect his chosen people. And a few years into doing it, she actually was betrayed by someone that was in their life and the Nazis showed up and they throw her and her family into a, a, a Dutch prison. And while she's there, she loses her, her father, uh, passed away there. 
she was put in solitary, solitary confinement because she was kind of, I guess you could say, the ringleader, the one that, that did the most to aid the Jews. And uh, while she was there, the allied forces actually start taking back pieces of Western Europe. And so rather than the Nazis just allowing all of those prisoners to go free, the, they started either just executing the prisoners, uh, which she said that on one day they executed 7,000 men that they just did not want to move back to Germany. They either executed the prisoners or they consolidated everybody back to prison camps inside of Germany. And so one day, well, I guess I should say over a few days, she and her sister Betsy got moved from the Holland prison, the Dutch prison, to a prison camp in Germany called Ravensbrück. And if you don't know anything about Ravensbrück, if you've never heard about it, uh, it was the largest women's prison camp in Germany. And as, as Corey and her sister Betsy are getting a tour, a very hellish tour through their barracks that they are going to be living in, they find out a couple things. They find out that this barrack was made for 400 women to live in, and currently there are 1,400 women living in it. So they know they're just going to be packed in like sardines. They, they get inside of it, and the smell is so offensive because there were only eight toilets for 1,400 women. The kicker is none of them worked. And so just the filthiest of environments. And at this time, she's sitting there saying, solitary confinement actually sounds pretty good right now. I would love to go back to that. As they take her and get her closer to where her and Betsy's platform is going to be, because they didn't have beds, they had platforms stacked three high that were built for four women to sleep on. And now because of the overpopulation, nine women were sleeping in that same area. The platforms were so close that she said that when she sat up in the middle of the first night, she smacked her head on it because of how low the next platform was. And that often at times, a platform would fall on the people below it because of the weight, because there were more women on it than it was built for. They get close to it, and as they get close to it, they realize something is biting them, and they look down, and there are fleas jumping off of the platform, biting them. They see lice everywhere. And she's sitting there going, God, what have you brought me into? We're talking about anxiety and depression. Do you feel anxious and depressed about something that happened back in the 1940s right now? You better believe it. And her sister looks over to her. She says, Philippians 4, 4, 6, and 7. Extremely, extremely popular verses. But she says this, always be full of joy in the Lord I say it again, rejoice. And she says, we are going to rejoice even in the midst of this situation. And Corey's sitting there going, there's no way. What do we have to rejoice about? Look where we are. This is a hellish environment that we are living in right now. And her sister says, here's what we're gonna rejoice about. We're together. It would have been very easy for us to get split up on this journey and not be together, but we are together. You know what else we're gonna, we're gonna rejoice about? This is where active, the, the active gospel comes into play. We are going to rejoice that there are 1,400 women in this barrack that are broken and, and fractured and desperate to hear about the peace of God. 
We're gonna rejoice that we have the opportunity to share with them. Said, you know what else we're gonna gonna rejoice about? All throughout their movement, God had provided a Bible that they tied on a string and they actually hung it backwards and rested it in between their shoulder blades so that they could kind of hide it underneath of their clothing. And they talk about every checkpoint that they went through, whether they were searched, whether they were, were made to be naked and walk in front of the German officers to just kind of make sure that they didn't have anything on them that wasn't allowed to go to the next one. Every single time they prayed, God, get this Bible through this next checkpoint. And every time something happened where the officers would literally ignore them as they walked through or the officer would look directly at the spot where the Bible was and would see nothing. And they said, we're gonna rejoice that God has allowed his word to get into this place. They actually end up rejoicing that there were fleas. Someone reminded me in the first service, I forgot about this detail. They rejoiced that there were fleas. There were so many fleas in the barrack that the officers wouldn't even go in there. And so they were able to have services where they read the Bible and translated among all of the other women and never have to worry about being found out that the gospel was being shared. That is active faith. Because we can, we can read those words. We can read things like, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. You can read those things, but if you're not actively living them, if it is not infecting your mind and your heart, if it's not transforming your thoughts then you will stay in your anxiety and in your depression. But the gospel brings the option. It brings hope. It's right there. Will you pursue after it? Whether you're an adolescent right now or you don't remember the last time you were an adolescent. And they didn't even call you that back when you were a teenager. I don't know. But it's right there. Physically, spiritually. To, to close, I just uh, I wanna kind of share some things just kind of make some notes. Students, I, I like to, to talk to you first, and I, I just want to make sure that, that you understand that in the midst of your generation, you cannot view yourselves as helpless victims at your age anymore. You can't just wait around for other people to come and help you. Your faith must become just as active in your life as any adult in this room if you expect to overcome these issues. For parents and grandparents, here's a couple of things, again, that I'm not trying to correct. I just want us to get our heads around, all right? They're not super specific. I just want them to apply in very big ways in the way that you think through this topic. Is first of all, parents, be intentional and attentive. Lazy parenting has no place in the church anymore. I I shared with the first service that there's a comedian that jokes about the fact that he said, my, you know, when he was talking about taking pictures of his children, and he says, I'm pretty sure I have more pictures of my kids than my father even looked at me when I was growing up. Lazy parenting has no place anymore. It just doesn't. You can't expect that someone else is teaching your child outside of the church about Christ's values and, and worth and identity like maybe you could when you were growing up. It just doesn't happen. You have to be attentive. You have to be extremely intentional. Students, 
It is just as much your responsibility to voice what you are going through as it is your parents' responsibility to be attentive to you. You hear me? For your own sake, you have to talk honestly and openly with those that care for you. Parents, the next thing that I'm gonna ask you to do is maybe is the hardest one, but is in the midst of when a student is telling you something. Don't freak out, right? Don't freak out. Pray for grace, pray for gentleness, and just hear what is coming to you. Don't discredit their, their feelings. Don't validate them. Instead, give their feelings worth. Give it meaning. Let them know that you are listening And please don't freak out. The next thing that I think is is part of your ministry as parents is that you relate and testify about what you are hearing to your kids. Your kids, adolescents, do not want perfect parents. They don't. They don't want you to be polished. They don't want to only see all of the good things that are happening in your life. You know what they want? They just want real faith, tangible, something to grab onto. All of us have experienced anxiety and depression at some level in our lives. All of us have mourned. All of us have grieved. All of us have worried. And in those moments, when your student is telling you something, when your grandchild is telling you something, when, when a student at your school that you work at, or, or maybe just someone that comes into an office or an internship program is telling you about these things, relate to them. Let them know that you have experienced similar thoughts. And then, you know what I think is even more amazing? It's testify to God's goodness. Tell them how God taught you and grew you through those same moments that they are experiencing right now and what it did for your faith, what it did for your marriage, what it did for your idea of community, how it changed the way that you thought about God. Minister to them in those moments. And lastly, what I would ask you to do is not to judge. Please, please do not self-righteously judge this next generation. Please. Instead, pray for them. Lift these younger generations up to God. Bring their maturity and their growth to God's throne and let him do it. We see on a regular basis in the student ministry that God is working in our teens, the way that he is raising up the next generation of pastors and leaders in the midst of the cultural problems to proclaim his truth and his gospel. And I ask, I ask that you play an active role in the future by supporting our adolescents in prayer. Remember, remember that God is not the God of one generation or another. He did not impact your generation greater than he has a chance to impact this generation. He is the God of all generations. He is always furthering his kingdom. He worked in the midst of your generation's sin and struggles. I've heard about the 70s. Just like he is working in this generation's. Support them, love them, pray for them, and please, please do not abandon them. We have the hope and peace of Christ. Now may we show it to this generation that is in such desperate pursuit of it. Let me pray.
Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this beautiful gospel that you've given us. A gospel that relates and transforms every generation. A gospel that literally is the only hope for this fractured world, for our fractured lives. Father, as parents and grandparents and influencers of adolescents, God, give them, give them gentleness, give them relatability, give them the courage to ask tough questions, to find out what is going on. Father, give them grace to deal with these situations, to relate and testify to your goodness. God, with our our students, Lord, with our adolescent generation who seemingly has so much and yet, Lord, has so little at the same time. Pray that you would continue to move them towards the joy and the peace that they can have inside of you and inside of, of your beautiful message of hope. Father, may we all walk out of here looking for ways to support and minister to anyone, any age, that is broken around us. In your name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.